And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest, freshest, deep down things. That's Gerard Manley Hopkins from his well-known poem, God's Grandeur. Welcome to Deep Down Things, a podcast partnership of Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. Join us for a deep dive into everything from literature, history, art, to philosophy and science as a way of discovering and sharing the depths of God's grandeur together. Hi, it's great to be with you. I'm Dr. Dave Devil. I'm a professor of Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm joined by my colleague, Liz Kelly. You just heard her voice. She's the managing editor of Logos, and she's also an award-winning speaker and writer. Uh, we are glad to be with you today on Deep Down Things to talk about th- these big issues. And one of the biggest is there, beauty. How does it relate to faith? And we're here with Nick Markell, an iconographer. Uh, he's uh, here in Minnesota. You can find him on the web at markellstudios.com. See some of his work. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. It's great to be here, and Liz as well. Nick, I've had you in my classroom many times before to talk to students about icons, and you often tell about your journey, both your spiritual journey and your artistic journey, uh, to the world of iconography. We'll talk a little bit about what we specifically mean by icons in a minute, but tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I grew up in Minnesota, uh, in Owatonna, and um, after graduation, I attended, the, uh, at that time, College of St. Thomas, it's university now, and uh, graduated there uh, in 1984 with a background in fine art. Um, the subsequent years after that, I worked in marketing and, and uh, graphic design and other areas, and um, but felt a calling uh, to uh, a religious life, so I entered the uh, Paulists in um, 85, and I was with them uh, as a seminarian for many years. And it's during that time uh, that I explored iconography in a deeper way. And during my time in the seminary, um, I felt a call to what I called the visual proclamation of the gospel mm. and uh, to uh, serve the church in that particular way. And um, so I ended up um, not uh, making final commitment to the Paulists. I needed to take time away. I moved back to Minnesota, eventually uh, met my wife, had a family, uh, and so, as they say, the rest is history. But uh, I did establish a um, uh, liturgical art studio back here in Minnesota in 1999. And so uh, last year, actually, was the 20th anniversary in which I served the church through primarily, and you'd see this if you visited my site, in the area of icons, uh, glass, and then graphics for publication. Hmm. We'll be putting uh, we'll be putting links to the, to uh, sites that we talk about and any uh, materials that we have in our show notes, so you'll be able to see that. Let's jump into let's jump into the terms here because the term icon today is used to describe Lady Gaga, and it's used to describe the <laughs> you know the little images flipping on your computer that you can click on and open up a window. Um, it's sometimes used to just be a picture when. When Christians talk about icons, what, what are we talking about specifically? What kind of images are these? Well, uh, it's a good point and a great question. Uh, the term icon is used in a very general way in society, and you know, it seems that today it is associated a lot with computers and technology. Uh, in the Christian tradition, an icon is something much deeper and, and guided by many more uh, canons or guidelines in the church and 
a very rich and deep tradition there of of sacred imagery. And uh, so in, in that sense, an icon is um, what I would say, depending on the, the circle of people I'm talking to, I would say an icon is more of a, a spiritual portraiture uh, of those being depicted. Um, and I also like to think of it as an image of who someone was in Christ. Mm. And, and so in that sense, um, it distinguishes itself from other forms of art or other icons, which the word itself is from the Greek, which simply means image, um, by being an image of truth, an image of well, what is that truth? It's the gospel truth. Uh, Christ has risen, uh, and he has, uh, uh, his, 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 through grace, we can participate in the divine nature of God. And so in that sense, we are transfigured or transformed in Christ. So the image in an icon is those who are fully alive in Christ. In fact, uh, you can only do an icon, create an icon of someone um, who is fully in Christ in, in heaven. And so um, it, it, it is not something of this world, but rather it's a window. It's called a window uh, into the spiritual realm or window into heaven. And so in that sense, it functions quite differently or specifically, I should say, uh, in terms of other kinds of uses we may have for the word icon in our in our culture today. Um, Nick, I studied painting for a long time, and uh, the human face was always my favorite subject. And to me, it was a really sacred task to try to capture a person. It's not just their face. You know, the face is kind of the bearer of one's soul. And so when I started later in life learning about icons, and in fact, the terminology, they are not painted, but they are written, uh, that really piqued my interest. Why is that distinction important? Or, or we could ask it this way, you know, what does my painting a picture of the Blessed Mother or my painting a picture of one of the saints uh, do differently, or what does an icon accomplish that a painting does not? Sure. Well, that's a good question, and it's very one that's asked a lot. There's a lot of interest on the part of people today over the idea that an icon is written, and that alone seems to set it apart, you know, in mm. some special way, mm -hmm. as some form of art that's being rediscovered. Um, the literal translation of the word iconography is image writing. And so when you, you think of the word uh, image, it would be uh, icon, and then graphy would be to write. So we see this, say, in um, the word um, graffiti or in uh, typography or other things. Mm -hmm. um, so that's part of the reason that the term is used. The other thought is that icon is written because it can be read. Mm. We can view the image, uh, it, it, the colors, the symbols. There's a kind of ability for us to read it. It tells a story about a person, not necessarily only what they look like, their physical appearance, but it tells a story, and particularly for a religious icon, a, a Christian icon, it tells a story of who this person was, again, in Christ. Um, and then the third reason I'd say is it's a smaller one, but interest that in the Eastern Church, where the icon tradition has been kept alive, and now we're rediscovering, I think, a bit more in the West, um, calligraphy or lettering is done with a brush. Uh, as opposed to, say, a nib. And so yes. there's a connection there. And so the idea of writing uh, is is there. Um, now, what I'd like uh, to, I like to use the term write because it challenges people to see icons in a different way. Uh, it prompts us to see differently than before. Uh, we're open to a new understanding. 
So what I think of is, if, you know, if you can write an icon, I, can you sculpt a meal? Can you sing a job interview? It, it, <laughs> uh, it, in other words, right. uh, it shakes things up a bit. It challenges us to immediately uh, think, I've got to view this differently. Now, with that said, uh, there's three terms that I'd like to uh, explore just briefly about this. Um, there's three that are used, write, paint, and create. Now, these days, I tend to use actually the word create more mm. for a few reasons. Um, first, there's plenty of people out there using the term write. And so I don't think it's being neglected. I think, again, like I say, it's that term which has started the conversation. It's piqued people's interest. It's got them seeing icons differently. But the word create denotes uh, something theological, uh, our participation in creation, co-creator. Um, I like how the iconographer uh, thinks about what they're doing in that sense and develops a spirituality. Um, the other aspect of creating an icon is that not every part of the process is using a brush. Uh, you, you may make your own boards. You may carve out of uh, a, a cove check in the board out of wood. You do some gessoing with a palette. And so there's other parts of the process. Gold leafing is a big part, etching into the uh, gesso. Uh, so today I use them differently, um, and the one that treats, you know, that piques people's interest is right. But I, I think of it as a much bigger process in which, in the tradition, um, it's believed that each of the elements in the process are represent the kingdoms of this world: the animal kingdom, the vegetable kingdom, and the mineral kingdom. Hmm. The, the egg would be the animal. The, uh, the wood of the board would be the vegetable, and the pigment would be the mineral kingdom. And all the kingdoms are brought together to die to self in order to serve the kingdom of God. Mm. And so I, I like to think of it in a much more holistic sense. Um, and yet each one of those terms, uh, you know, has meaning. Um, but in terms of the spiritual portrait, uh, what's interesting about that phrase is that it helps us to see that it's not only a natural one. Now, it is as though we're not uh, interested in the physical appearance of someone. But when you say spiritual portrait, it helps us to real feel something different about the person. And I think that's very important. The last point I would make to this is, again, depending on the group, I also tie, uh, at times speak of icons as realistic. And people will look at me oddly and say, realistic, what do you mean? I mean, they, they don't look realistic to me. And the reason I do that is it's my attempt to kind of challenge the common use of the language. Uh, people say it's realistic when they really mean it's naturalistic. Mm. And so we would say, say liturgically, we believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, but we don't mean the natural presence. Mm. And so for a Catholic to say that an icon is realistic is actually quite appropriate and accurate. And so I also will use that term sometimes uh, to help people understand what, what's the difference, go back to your original question, what, what is the difference? Uh, why is the term written used or what makes an icon different than other forms of portraiture or art? You know, you you allude to, to some of the aspects of this iconography tradition that I think many people are also interested in, apart from just calling it writing, but you alluded to uh, there's a longer process there, use, the use of egg base, uh, you know, doing your own boards. There's a kind of process. And you mentioned canons or guidelines. Uh, rules for writing an icon, and those include that sort of symbolic language that you talked about, but it also includes uh, things about the preparation mm -hmm. uh, and prayer. Could you speak a little bit more about that spiritual preparation that you do 
in order to make this realistic portrait in the in the the best sense yeah um the um uh, i think what what interests people today in part with iconography uh is in part it's filling a void in their lives a spiritual void but it's not only the image itself it's the very process i think i i hold workshops annually around the, the country um in fact this would have been our 10th year in uh in california but we decided because of the uh, COVID 19 that we will postpone till till next year but um you know it's been popular and i and i my, my circle of that i i you know i i uh frequent is i'm real interested in the very process itself it's all very prayerful um each step along the way uh has some prayer or symbolic doctrinal meaning to it uh we do we go through a series of steps we move from darkness to light so generally you apply the dark colors first and mm-hmm. then you begin adding lights we go through four basic phases or or kind of like the ladder jacob's ladder uh the body the light of the body the light of the soul the light of the spirit and then finally the light of heaven Hmm. and so um it's a process in which not only are we creating an icon but god is creating us as icons in that process as well would we be open to his grace and so um i think that that's as interesting uh, for people as anything else we use natural materials generally um, egg yolk mixed with um, pigment and wine and water creates our paint. We use real 24 karat gold. We use natural pigments for the gesso of the board, like uh, chalk and marble dust and other uh, uh, materials that over the centuries have been developed to to do this very, very well. So there's a sacredness about the very process and the materials we're using. What I think of in part is Many people use their hands every day, uh, whether they're in a factory, whether they're typing, whether they're washing dishes, you know, whether they're changing a diaper, whatever it might be. But what, what I found is that the very process of creating an icon, and if we abide by these canons and principles and guidelines, can help us to see that this is, these acts are sacred, that this is not something devoid from our spiritual life or what God has called us to or how we can bring about the kingdom. Rather, these are the very essence of what we're about. And so um, I think that it, it plays into that very well. When I was in the seminary, what I pondered was the fact that a lot of our theology is what I would call philosophical theology. And that means that we use the philosophical categories to express ourselves. If theology is a reflection of our faith or on faith, we tend to, to, we tend to kind of uh, gear more toward uh, phil- philosophy is the language to do that. But I think icons fall into the category of aesthetic theology, which is we use beauty in our hands and our movements and our gestures and other kinds of languages we develop in order to do theology. And I think there's a hunger for that and there's a real interest in it and that's what's being revived. Yeah, what is, what is, do you think that's particularly for Western Christians? Because some people look at icons and they say, well, you know, they don't understand the language behind them. They say they're, they're kind of flat. And they're un- unrealistic in the way we, we think of it, the way you would say unnaturalistic. Why do you think Western Christians have become so much more interested in, in this form? Well, um, as, as I mentioned, I think part of it is, uh, well, let me put it this way. I think it starts with Vatican II, I would say. I mean, there's many ways to talk about it. But in terms of the Western church in this country, particularly now, admittedly, other countries receive Vatican II different than the United States did that. 
we received those documents in the in the 60s, you know, when there was a lot of things going on that influenced how we received them. But in general, you, you, uh, to touch your point about the Western, is that Vatican II created, uh, the aftermath created uh, an idea uh, in which churches were built in which uh, they were oftentimes very simple, right? They yeah. were created uh, even Spartan at times. And so um, the guidelines early on uh, uh, kind of was, there was a lot of removal of images. Um, the idea was that the images we had didn't speak to uh, where the liturgy was going, the, the vision that was being proposed. So I think that was the basis for this interest um, that was there. Um, that there was a void being created and that icons began to fill that void. We also, you know, it's kind of like the perfect storm, right? You had the fall of communism in Russia. So you had the opening up of, of, uh, of the Eastern world to us in a way that was fresh and different. You had the catechism of the church that was published in the mid eighties in which, uh, the, you know, the church recognized that the icon illuminated scripture and scripture illuminated the icon that was a very important thing officially to have been stated. I think all this helped. But ultimately what happened in my view, in part, was that people uh, were accustomed to very few if any images, sacred images, and what was being produced maybe wasn't of that much depth. Or there were occasions where there, that was the case, yes. But uh, many times they were trendy. It was an experimental time. Um, and so we're coming out of that and the result is people are saying, you know, we didn't have images for a long time. We were told the images we had maybe weren't right for us anymore. The icon enters the scene, right, through all of these other you know, social dynamics as well as other things. And all of a sudden people say, wow, this is interesting. Uh, what, what is this about? So I think that that's part of the reason. Um, but icons speak to a deep spiritual hunger, I believe. Um, they, they're not a superficial image. They're not a trendy image. They're rooted in something quite deep that's been developed for centuries. And so, you know, I can't help but to think that that's just attractive in general. As the founding program of the Catholic Studies movement in higher education, St. Thomas Catholic Studies is internationally recognized for its integrated, Christ-centered approach to exploring 2,000 years of Catholic thought and culture. We provide a range of undergraduate and graduate programs, as well as professional development opportunities all to help you integrate faith into your academic and professional pursuits. Catholic intellectual exploration or career preparation? Choose both. Visit stthomas.edu backslash Catholic Studies to learn about our online, on-ground, and hybrid educational options so you can learn and grow wherever you need to be. Von Balthazar talks about the three sisters of truth, goodness, and beauty. And that if you lose one, you lose the other two as well. And uh, you know, a lot of his work is about how beauty is the one, uh, the one transcendental that still we still have that is effective in reaching souls. And uh, I do think it is a very powerful way for uh, especially those outside the church to enter into a dialogue that then is an exposition of truth and goodness on top of that. Yeah, I agree completely with that. In fact, I just um, recently wrote a small artist statement for a magazine that uh, from uh, dealing with uh, the transcendentals, you know, the true, what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, what is one. And um, 
I, I agree with that completely. I think that the beauty aspect of it is the one that we haven't developed as much. Mm-hmm. And I also think that the other attraction with icons, even though it may not be articulated, it's kind of you know subconscious or intuitive in people, is that it also appeals to a spiritual beauty as much as an earthly beauty. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's something of even greater depth there uh, for us to now re- recover. Yeah. Um, it isn't that the icon has never been there for us in the West. It's just that we have kind of put it on the back burner for a lot of reasons. Well, and you you talk about it being a visual way to tell the gospel story. And our whole culture has been uh, sort of retrained in um, demanding almost uh, visual communications with social media and, you know, all the pictures that we post and things like that. And so uh, I see the interest in iconography as just an extraordinary opportunity for evangelization to, for a culture that is so driven by images. I do too. I do too. Um, I think it was John Paul that said, you know, if we're not formed by the images we see in the liturgy, we'll be formed by those we see in the world. Yes. And um, we are bombarded uh, with images, and many of them. Again, either maybe superficial or uh, trendy, and many of them leading us in a wrong direction. And so I think that that icons can come into that uh, and play an interesting role um, just in terms of, you know, what is it that we're called to the What's appealing to me, I, I remember my first kind of experience with icons was probably in the novitiate year when I was with Apollos. I had studied art uh in college but art was presented icons were presented more in terms of art history mm-hmm. and more from a that perspective not necessarily from a a religious spiritual liturgical one so you know uh, and i remember just feeling so drawn to them like they they truly spoke to me in a way that at that time i could not articulate mm-hmm. and uh, so i i realized their 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 power you know their ability to to draw people in and then you know the years following was my journey in which to understand what that initial impulse was all about. And then, um, you know, following what I felt was the call in my life to, to be an iconographer, which also realizing is a true vocation in the life of the church. So when I speak Mm. to schools or colleges, uh, I try to bring that up, that there are some who are sitting here today who are iconographers. You're called, Mm. this is a ministry. And, um, and so uh, that's being recovered as well. How does that order your life, your vocation? Uh, I think um, yeah, part of it is that um, there's a spirituality to being an iconographer. And when I uh, and so when you say how does that order my vocation, um, it's not only a you know vocation in the church, but I think there can be a spirituality about it that I try to develop and try to uh, live by. And so when I, when I give workshops, for example, each of the steps in the process of creating an icon, writing an icon, we explore both the practical, you know, dimension of it, like, you know, what materials we're using, how to mix them, what's the right, you know, combination of water to wine, et cetera. There's the theological, what dogma or teaching is this revealing? And then there's the spiritual or the, the spirituality of it. And so um, one of the areas uh, uh, in terms of, of this commitment I have is in, an, in iconography, you, you don't paint shadows. Mm. Mm-hmm. You, reveal, you, you 
when you br- you bring light to darkness. Mm. And so in, in the process of bringing light to darkness, shadows may be revealed. Mm. In fact, the great saints would say that, wouldn't they? They'd say, you know, the closer I get to the light, I turn around and my shadow is longer. Yes. Um, but, but, but it's different. We don't dance in the shadows. We don't intentionally try to create them. What we do is we bring light to the darkness. And in doing that, the shadows can appear. But our focus isn't that. It's always the light. So even that alone, as the spirituality of an iconographer, I apply to almost every part of my life. Mm. Um, you know, I can bring the light to the darkness, no matter what I'm doing. Mm. Um, and I think that um, some people are just called to do that differently. Some people are called to do that uh, with the words they use. Uh, some people are called to do that with what they build. Some people are called to do that with who they associate with. Others are called to do it with a brush and a chisel uh, and, uh, and be an iconographer. Well, let's, you know, we bring up the chisel there. This brings up a question. Many Catholics are familiar with the statuary traditions, many of the great artistic works, particularly uh, after the Council of Trent, the Baroque period. Um, and sometimes there can be a kind of fighting back and forth between those who are, who are proponents of the older iconographic tradition and then the newer art forms that flourished, uh, you know, post, post-Renaissance, for instance. I, I think of G.K. Chesterton's marvelous book, The New Jerusalem, uh, about his tra- uh, traveling through the Middle East. And he has a reflection in which he talks about the iconographic tradition in somewhat negative terms. And he says mm-hmm. this inability to have perspective and to ha- be, have the sort of three-dimensionality is perhaps, he thinks, a hangover from some of the Christological heresies, which didn't really allow that Christ could be really human in flesh and blood. And he thinks mm-hmm. that development goes that way. Um, how do you think about an argument like that? Well, do we have several hours? <laughs> That's right. We'll, we'll have a fist fight too, you know. <laughs> but with masks on. With masks. On. <laughs> Safe. Well, let, let me let me say, and if you'd give me a moment with yeah. this, because uh, this has come up so many times in, in what I do. You know, G.K. Chesterton, you know, is well known uh, by many Catholics. He represents. Um, I think he's a good representative for Catholic belief in, in the Incarnation and what we've said about it. He's down to earth. He's practical. What, what was he? The Apostle of Common Sense, I believe. Was. Yeah. So he, yeah. he, he certainly is appreciated. He represents that aspect of thought. Now, I hope that my response to him would be as co- much common sense. So you, you be the judge of that. What I, what I would say is, you know, it, it seems that Chesterton thought baby statues uh, were a better way to represent the Incarnation. So let's start with that maybe as an idea. And I suspect that um, they're very much part of this world, right? They're three-dimensional, et cetera. But what's interesting to me is that when I think of a witness to the incarnation, I think of the icon. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we recall the Old Testament, God could not be imaged because he was pure spirit. You know, his name was so sacred, it's so divine, it couldn't be pronounced. There were mandates against graven images. So in the coming of Christ and the birth of the church, the icon stood historically as a witness to the incarnation, not a denial of it. God could be imaged because of the God-man Christ. So this was a radical belief then and still is. So when I think of the incarnation, I think of the icon. So that's a slightly different angle on, on the incarnation. So to me, iconography has historically stood for this. But for me, it's the right balance, right? It's the right balance between the human and divine. So the issue is how far do you take the ramifications of the incarnation and the humanity of Jesus before you start implicitly diminishing his divinity? 
you know, we have to remember Christ himself said, my kingdom is not of this world. So I think it's very important that when we're exploring the incarnation, we safeguard Christ's divinity. Mm -hmm. um, and so if Catholics get the notion when they're viewing statuary that Jesus changed from being God into being human or being divine is not primary, then, you know, something is missing. Right. Um, with that said, I don't think we ought to juxtapose them or make them opposed to one another. Um, when I uh, read, I read somewhere that, you know, an icon, excuse me, a statue is to an icon what speech is to song. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's something interesting to ponder. They both have a same kind of essence about them, but they're clearly different. Mm -hmm. So this is what I would say to Chesterton if he were here, uh, if he's listening. Um, <laughs> uh, I would respond to asking, what is his understanding of the relationship between the incarnation and the resurrection? So the doctrine of the church on the incarnation is still very important. It's vital. But the gospel proclamation of the church wasn't that Jesus was born, but that he rose. This is the message of Easter and what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if Christ isn't raised, our faith is in vain. And so for me, um, it's the issue of the resurrected body. So when you talk about a statue, something can, people can relate to, something that's very down to earth, very naturalistic. What I'd say, what's the, what's the relationship of that, the fact that People, Jesus lived historically, but he's been raised with a glorified body. I think that's the real key for iconography. Uh, St. Thomas said, you know, that the glorified body will be our body, but of a different glory. Yes. Yeah. No corruption. Right. And so we find in the scriptures all those stories about Jesus, you know, he, in Luke, where he was at the Emmaus and he would vanish from their sight. In John, the upper room where you know, the doors are locked, but all of a sudden he appears. I mean, we have all these witnesses to that. And so my question is, would be this, David. Can statues sufficiently express this glorification? Yeah. Can a three-dimensional work reveal the fullness of the glorified Christ who can pass through walls? Mm. Now, yeah. to clarify, you know, I think this is important. The saints in heaven, although we find in Hebrews that they are made perfect, but they don't have their bodies yet, save the Lord and his mother. Because of the resurrection, the assumption in terms of church teaching, they have their bodies now. But liturgically, we, we can, we, in an icon, we give a body because we anticipate they're perfect, there's no corruption, and we anticipate oh, the fullness that will come when Christ comes again. So in the creed, we say we look forward to the resurrection, the dead, the life, the world to come. So icons do that. So here's my po point with statues. I have hope for statues, which I'll talk about in a second, but here's my point. How many statues have you seen, say, of St. Catherine Drexel or Maximilian Colby, where they're wearing glasses, spectacles? That's okay. that naturalism that you were talking yeah. about versus a realism, so, right? Correct. So why would they need them if, if there's no corruption? So the question is, statues play a part uh, I like I like to think of the fact that when I look at a statue, I see who the saint was in their earthly life, right? And I can walk behind it. I can see their profile. I can see the back of their head. I think of a statue more as being a reminder of who this person was in the past. But liturgically, we're interested in who they are now. Mm-hmm. 
mystically, sacramentally, right? They're in heaven. They're perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And who they will be and who we will be. And so for me, it's not an issue of whether or not statues don't have their place, um, but rather which does it better. Yeah. And why? Like in the East, you know, the uh, and this is why a lot of my work is influenced a lot by the East, you know, they chant the liturgy. The West generally speaks it. Mm-hmm. Well, if St. Augustine says, you know, him who sings prays twice, if we really believe that, uh, you know, isn't this a missed opportunity? So the, the icons and the revival kind of spill over into other areas of the life of the church, too. And we're still reviving the liturgy, for example, too, and finding ways in which that can be done more fully. So uh, I still have hope for statuary, um, but there is often too little or nothing about them, which to me evokes the spiritual or, or the divine. The concern is there isn't a balance to me. Um so I, what I would say this, so my interest is that iconography, what I'm doing, can influence all the arts, all the liturgical arts, and to try achieve in their work something, I think, a little bit fuller. So what I would say is that um, uh, if statuary does return to the church and gets developed in a way maybe it was more strongly present before the council, I think it needs to kind of go through a certain reformation of sorts. Mm-hmm. I think there has, to be, there has to be some kind of a realization that what we're doing and why are we doing it and what are we trying to uh what are we trying to do i think the key there uh, in many ways would be the liturgy and so you know cardinal ratzinger as is, is, you know i've mentioned a lot of times in my talks does state that the icon should be the normative theology for the church and that's a very strong statement but yes. he, he doesn't stop there he does say that you know we, sh- we should be open to the fresh movement of the spirit um but that Today, he's ex- you know we experience a crisis in sacred art because there's a blindness to the spirit, and so what I would say is that if statuary, which I have hope for, uh, is to find a place again, uh, maybe some kind of change has to happen that's deep enough where statuary can surface as being able to communicate something much more profound of the spiritual and divine than what I've seen you know yet. Wow, that's what I would say. Yeah. yeah. I, I was thinking of uh, the philosopher, Catholic apologist Peter Kraft has said that, you know, the three things that we need are the Latin Mass, the King James Bible, and the hymns of, of Wesley. Um, you know, and it's kind of a funny line, but, uh, you know, I think, you know, with talking, talking with you about this, I mean, in some ways you're promoting, uh, you know, the iconographic tradition and chant, <laughs> you know, uh, two things yeah, that, yeah. that we need to, to, to revive. I agree. I think so. I mean, there's a place for the others, you know, uh, and I, I, I think that, you know, Catholic view of, you know, it's not either or, it's both and uh, comes into play here where there's places for all these things. Um, but I would say let them develop and let them be evaluated based on artists and musicians and writers and theologians who are steeped in the liturgy, who are steeped in what's being developed about the liturgy, steeped in participating in the liturgy. Um, and so that we have a basis from which we can say, does this serve the liturgy? And, I, and clearly, I make a distinction here between liturgical art and other forms of art. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so I think that that's very important. Um, there's other all kinds of art that could be created if it's of the genuine movement of the spirit in a person's life and it has a place. Um, but as I say, you know, it may not be appropriate to, to chant, uh, you know, um, Again, a job interview, <laughs> right? But, uh, right. But in the liturgy, it I'm going to try well. that. <laughs> My next yeah. gig, I'm trying that. 
right? You can sculpt one, enchant one. Uh-huh. Um, you may get the job. You know, that's the thing, depending <laughs> on the employer. But the point is that the liturgy really is the place, isn't it? I mean, if, if any place where, then the liturgy to really go full go, you know, you know go give everything we've got. Um, and um, so as the liturgy develops and our understanding of it, true sacred art will develop. And it will, you know, find a place. I think one uh, one of the things that strikes me too about this conversation is that this is a long process. This is uh, you have to gain a vocabulary. You have to learn how to see, how to look. Uh, um, this is not something that happens very quickly, but that really it's kind of a lifetime of formation uh, to enter into some of these um, relationships with the liturgy and with liturgical art, um, it doesn't happen quickly. And we've lost so much vocabulary around it that we really have a lot of like backfilling to do <laughs> before we, do. we can we, even begin yeah. to approach some of what you're suggesting. I think that's right. I think it's it, part of it's educational, part of it's formation. Yeah. Part, part of it is the liturgy itself. There's this, uh, there's a story and again, because of my work, I'm, I'm quite, you know, I rub shoulders a lot with Eastern Orthodox and Eastern Catholic Christians and people from different cultural uh, experiences. And the story is that in medieval Russia, the village was trying to find the new priest. The priest had died. And they said, well, who, what man is going to be our new priest? Well, the consensus of the council was the man who could sing. Uh. And they said, well, what about if he's ignorant of the church teaching? He said, oh, we can. We can teach him theology, but if he can't <laughs> sing, if he can't sing, we're doomed. Oh, boy. And his point simply was, what an interesting take on yes. what's most central. Yes. Um, and so— um, And I what think, convinces, uh, you know, what is credible? What convinces is that beauty, you know? What draws yeah, you yeah. in and what's compelling? Yeah, I agree. And, you know, if, if the beauty isn't there, we, we become— suspect maybe a little bit to the truth and the goodness. I think Bishop Barron out of uh, the West Coast speaks very well, quoting Balthazar, you know, that, uh, that uh, you know, beauty is indeed kind of the avenue in which we can, it's our, it's our secret gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's our hidden gift in the church is, is, is beauty and how that can uh, evangelize. So That is a perfect place to end because it gives us Really, the, the, the message that, uh, that I think we all need to hear again about, about how those transcendentals, those things that go beyond the, this worldly, this changeable life, truth, goodness, and beauty need to be together, and we need, we need all three of them. Nick, I, I've mentioned your, uh, your website, markelstudios.com, M-A-R-K-E-L-L studios.com. You can look at some of Nick's work uh, in parishes and elsewhere. What, what other resources could you give us to end to, to look at uh, iconography and that, and that tradition of reflection on, on beauty and, and truth and goodness? Well, there's a lot of good resources out there. Um, there's, if you want something um, a little more technical and of depth, The Work of the Meaning of Icons is a book out there by Lenoid Ospensky, who did some uh, revival work in the uh, Orthodox world uh, in the mid-century. But I'd say a good start for, say, Catholics who are interested in introduction to icons from a more kind of um, uh, reflective, more common view. I think it's being still published. There's a book out there that was uh, written by uh, Henri Nouwen, the priest mm-hmm. who died. 
mm-hmm. called The Beauty of uh, the Lord. And it's a smaller, uh, I believe it was published by Ave Maria. Interesting thing with that is that there's four plates in the book. You can fold out those color plates of four different icons and actually be viewing the icon while you're reading his reflections. Mm-hmm. They're, more, they're more reflections versus anything deeply theological or liturgical. I think that can be a wonderful place to start for people who are beginning with icons, wondering what they're about, how to look at them, uh, and spend time with them. And I would also say that, um, uh, you know, that's one of the interesting things with an icon is that it may not be initially something that people find uh, attractive or the style they like or something of that sort. But if we see them more scripturally, if we say, well, there's a lot of passages in scripture which, you know, I'm not going to do in calligraphy and hang over my sofa. Um, they're, they're not, you know what I mean? Right. They're not going to be that there's a, some that I would, you know, uh, this Psalm 23 or the great passage from Paul about, you know, love and in, in the end, all things, you know, love is the one that lasts all these beautiful passages. There's others that are not, but they're as important for our spiritual life. And I think that if people take time with icons, they grow on them and they see a depth and then they come to appreciate them the way that we do all of scripture. And so. I'd say start with those two works, depending on your interest, and then stay with it mm-hmm. um, and pray about it and let the icon, let the Lord yeah. speak to you through the icon. Yeah. Um, not only bring your evaluation of the icon to, to the experience, but as they say in the East, let the icon evaluate you. Yes. That's true. Truth, a lot of prayer. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of prayer. Yeah, a lot of writing as well, right? Let yeah. let the icon, which is a witness to this fullness, evaluate where we are Yes, and beautiful. what we need to do and trust that the Lord does work uh, through icons as a portal of his grace and uh, that that could be another avenue in which we can experience uh, a depth of relationship with the Lord. Wow. Thank you very much. This has been Nick Markell. On the Deep Down Things podcast, I'm Dave Devil with Liz Kelly. And thank you listeners for joining us for another great episode of Deep Down Things. We hope that you'll visit our website, patreon.com backslash deepdownthings to become a patron of the show and continue the conversation. Find us there and you can see the show notes to see references to the books and websites and topics that we've been talking about. We'll see you next time. God bless. Have you ever read something about the Catholic faith or a topic by a great writer or theologian or philosopher, and you wish that you could personally ask them about something they'd said or how they got to their conclusion? We experience this at the Logos Journal Daily. And while we have the opportunity to learn more from that person, it's not a conversation that only a few people should be able to have. We think a lot of you would be interested in knowing and learning more. The Logos Journal and our St. Thomas Catholic Studies friends and supporters need your help to do this. It takes a good deal of effort to get this access and produce a podcast that is meaningful and helpful to you. We hope that you'll go to our podcast website, patreon.com backslash deep down things to become a monthly subscriber. For as little as $5 a month, you can be a podcast patron and in return get access to some really great bonus content like online access to the journal articles we discuss and additional spiritual reflections and bonus episodes offered by Father Byron Hagen and Father Bryce Evans, great friends of Logos and priests in the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis. 
And if you're a patron to the podcast, one, you get the ability to comment on the podcast. And two, you can interact directly with us, our guests, and other podcast contributors. Definitely check it out to receive access to some of the best Catholic intellects currently thinking about deep down things. That's www.patreon.com backslash deep down things. That's one word, no spaces, deep down things. 